Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our guest this week is Dr. Anushka Pachava, Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Vitality, the health, life insurance, and well-being company with a difference. Anushka's background has certainly spanned the spectrum of the healthcare ecosystem, to say the least, as well as spanning a number of continents too, from working as a physician to a consultant to a technology developer, and now, of course, the innovative work she's doing for the next generation of health and life insurance businesses. Not to mention, Anushka is also a marathon runner, mountain climber, and weightlifter, Anushka's multifaceted experience makes her a really exciting guest on today's show, and I've been very, very excited about interviewing Anushka. She's also a one of the top 10 women in tech for the year 2020. Welcome to the show, Anushka. It's really, really great to have you here. Hi, Craig. Great to be here. So you've got a, a varied background, and I, I touched on a portion of your work and a little bit about your history. But uh, while we've got you here, it'll be great to hear from yourself, just a little bit more detail, you know, how you got to where you are now, how you moved from being a qualified medical doctor uh, to your role um, at Vitality. That's such a great question, Craig, and not one I have a, a direct answer for. I always get asked this question. And for me, I think the transitions I've had in my career and the experience that that's brought me is all down to one key thing. And I think that's curiosity. I always say and talk about my ABC and my ABC are kind of the values that I live by. A being authenticity, B being brave and C being curious. And so for me, I think when I was a physician in the NHS and out in the US, I always had a deeper interest in business, in innovation, in trying to improve processes and pathways, but was very limited in that you know, the role of a physician is generally, without being too facetious, go in, make sure no one dies, come out. That meant that I had to change career paths to really be involved in the areas that I was interested in. And, and so for me, I went on a journey learning about innovation, learning about how businesses run, learning about strategy. I'm still learning about the finer aspects of business whilst pursuing an executive MBA this year, including accounting and the financial statement pieces. And curiosity then led me on to the next thing and then the next thing. Okay. And in terms of the role at Vitality, can you just tell us what um, you get up to there in terms of, you know, sort of the day-to-day, what your strategy is and and sort of what's next for you? Sure. So I went from strategy consulting to a large international private medical insurer, an American medical insurer. And whilst I was there, I focused on digital health and population health and bringing analytics into health systems. And from that role, I realized that I had a huge passion for not only improving the digital aspects of healthcare, which have been catalyzed since by the COVID-19 pandemic, 
but also looking at quality, looking at governance, and looking at building the new health ecosystems of the future, a concept I call for digital, physical and digital blended healthcare ecosystems. It's not dissimilar to the lives we lead because, you know, we lead for digital lives right now, although we tend to use the word hybrid. So for me, my role at Vitality is as Deputy Chief Medical Officer. I look after a variety of areas, the two key ones being our cancer care services. And as, as we know, cancer care is evolving at such pace right now. Key questions around keeping cancer care sustainable, the costs of cancer care sustainable, improving member journeys, driving health outcomes, particularly in line and in light of the pandemic affecting public health systems globally and the provision of care globally, and also ensuring that new and novel treatments are brought to patients in an effective way and one that you know we can then drive not only medicine's adherence, because cancer treatment is often quite complex, particularly in the later stages, but also an understanding and awareness of a patient's journey through you know, using predictive analytics and, and such likes. So cancer care in its entirety is a, is a fascinating area. And I look after our cancer case management team at Vitality, which helps not only the member navigate once they've been diagnosed with cancer, the healthcare system, but also with the aspects of paying claims and, and utilization management to some extent. And then the other area, large area I look after is our primary care services. And again, a fascinating area to be in, given the changes of the COVID-19 pandemic. One that is at a crossroads, really, accounting for the fact that there's only a finite number of GPs in the UK and the system and the demand for GPs is unbalanced right now. So how do we better deliver primary care, either through digital or through differentiated care models that aren't fully and solely reliant on GPs, whilst also thinking about the future of, you know, do we leverage technologies? Do we leverage chatbots? Do we leverage just better digital triage tools? And such likes is a big part of my day-to-day. I know you started at Vitality, I think, around about when the pandemic actually, you know, arrived in the UK around March uh, 2020. I mean, what was that like? You know, people's livelihoods were so at stake and everyone was greatly affected. It must have been quite challenging to start, although it must feel long time, <laughs> a long time ago now. You're not wrong, Craig. Just the date is different to what I remember. So I started at Vitality January last year, so 2021. So the pandemic had hit. I made a decision to move roles in the middle of the pandemic, predominantly because I think like a lot of people during the pandemic, you start questioning yourself. I remember waking up every morning and asking myself some deep existential questions about what my purpose was, where I wanted to be, my career, you know, what development I wanted to drive in lockdown in myself and also in my peers, my colleagues and my friends. And for me, that led me to the Vitality role. So I started in the middle of the pandemic, in the deepest, darkest winter, uh, January 2021. And in a large company where it was, you know, fully digital and fully remote, having met and worked with people that I'd only really interacted with very briefly on phone or on screen, which was a very, very, I guess, learning experience for me. I think for those that have changed roles in the middle of pandemic, you'll empathize with the fact that building relationships through a screen and on Teams or Zoom or whatever your modality is, is incredibly difficult. 
but also I think managing teams and understanding those dynamics that individuals hold within the business, either at leadership level or part of the delivery teams, is very difficult to to do that virtually. And I find virtual and digital very transactional because you'd only ever dial into a meeting or a call with someone if you had to ask them a question. Whereas day-to-day life is, is very different, isn't it? It's very um, conversational yeah. and a lot more fun. So it was a very, very challenging time for me. And actually, I think I went into it, as I often do with everything, being bold and brave and maybe a little bit cocky as well, thinking this will be really easy. I'm pretty sociable and soon learning that screen burnout and screen fatigue is a real thing. Yeah, and you just seem to work a lot yeah you lose that uh, the personal connection and you're just working all the time so but you're working a lot harder because there's a TED talk I recently watched about how being on screen is basically like being in the theater or being in, on a film because you're being watched the whole time and a lot of us don't actually like to be watched the whole time yeah I've actually turned off my uh, view now so I also don't see myself because it's also exhausting watching yourself <laughs> back at yourself the whole day. I definitely recommend that Agree. for anyone. <laughs> it's funny how humans don't like to look at themselves and often find it very uncomfortable looking at ourselves. Yeah, and um, looking at Vitality, what, are you back in the offices now? Is it hybrid? What's the, the day-to-day at the moment? So as of the recent changes by the UK government just last week, we're back to hybrid So I will be spending at least two days in the office. I do a four-day working week myself. So two days in the office and two days at home, which is a really nice balance to organize in-person meetings where you can and then have some quiet thinking time when you're at home. Yeah, four-day working week is the way forward. We've just launched it ourselves and everyone seems to love it. But also going in now is just so stressful, so stressful, so expensive. And you got to, all these extra things you got to do to go into the office is, we used to live like that day to day or every day. Are you finding a a similar pattern there? Uh, I think so to some extent. I often find the most stressful thing is finding a mask in our household. We have masks in about 20 different locations but when you need one you can never find one in you know the boxes that we've located at home but for me it's more getting used to being around people being in crowded spaces you know the public transport which we've all not become accustomed to or not been doing for the past few years and also I think it's the energy of getting dressed putting on your the right mindset and putting on your face and your game face for, for the office. Again, not something we're all used to as a result of the pandemic. That being said, when, when I was really struggling during the pandemic with getting out of bed and particularly when it's dark and in the mornings, it's quite tough. I introduced a fake commute into my day <laughs> whereby I'd actually get up, I'd get completely dressed for the office. I would go walk around the block and pretend I was walking into the office and then come back into my house as this is now the office. And at the end of the day, I would then get undressed. I'd put my gym clothes on. I'd go to the gym and then come back into my house after the gym as now I'm returning from work. And it's really funny how you can trick your mind into then accepting that as normal and really reset your frame and thinking. Well, we, I should have interviewed you earlier because we needed this advice a few months ago. But <laughs> definitely, I think if you are working from home, it's such a nice thing to do. You know, if you force yourself to get out there, go for a walk, go for a run, you know, just not just be indoors uh, all the time, especially if I live in an open plan, so I can always see my work station. So you feel like you never really leave. So that's a great idea. 
So let's talk about the pandemic and technology. It's obviously accelerated technology. There's lots of uh, new things that technology has brought to the party. You know, how do you feel that the pandemic's accelerated technology? What are you excited about? Uh, what do you see on the horizon? Like, what's next? A really great question, Craig. It depends on the day of the week that you ask me this question. My perspective changes. But what I would say is the pandemic has forced us to adopt where previously we wouldn't have necessarily adopted technology. For example, in healthcare, where physicians as well as patients were quite adamant that in-person physical touch was absolutely necessary, we've seen a massive swing. And almost because we were forced to, physicians as well as patients have adopted you know, either video or telephone consultations. And what we've seen that do for the system is create, one, efficiencies, but two, also create an opportunity whereby it could be that, you know, going forward, only those that most need physical appointments will have physical appointments and those that medium or low risk could be offered phone conversations, either through video or voice. And that could then open up capacity within a, a system that's already burdened. So I think technology has evolved as a result of that push, as a result of that pandemic, but also the mindset and culture has evolved because it's been forced down that road. What we see in healthcare, though, and it's quite interesting, is during the pandemic, there was a phobia of being in physical clinical environments because you always felt if someone was coughing or someone was sneezing, you were then putting yourself at risk. And those crowded environments weren't seen as you know amenable to good health. And we haven't seen those phobias necessarily fully disappear. And I do wonder whether people who have adopted digital will be okay with losing the convenience and the accessibility of digital to then revert back to physical clinics and almost shaking off that phobia. So I think the pandemic has brought that digital adoption in areas that we, we previously wouldn't have seen it. You know, I know, for example, the hospitality sector did some very cool stuff around teaching people to cook at home because we forgot that a lot of people probably didn't know how to cook breakfast and lunch and, and maybe even dinner at home, myself included, whereby, you know, I'd, I'd get a, a protein shake on the way out the door and then I'd normally have lunch in the office, either go to a local joint or in office catering. So for me, being able to cook a lunch in seven minutes in between the meetings is a skill and one I've had to learn <laughs> through chefs showing me the likes of Jamie Oliver's 15-minute meals and such likes on a video, YouTube video and such likes. Where I think the pandemic has also accelerated digital is the need for not only businesses in equipping and, and ensuring their infrastructure is tied up, but the need for us thinking deeper around data and the value of data in our businesses. And for me, I see data in businesses as two streams, one around data empowerment. Is the data you have on your customers, on your employees, within your business in the right place? And is it being used in an effective, insightful way? Do the right people in the business have access to that data? It's really hard if all your data is sat in a data warehouse and if a member of the management team needs to access that data, them having to ask someone to write code to then get that data out of the warehouse. It's really hard to see how that's empowering an organization. And organizations, as a result of the digital transformation that COVID has driven, have been led down this path to think more about the value of data 
And there's some fantastic businesses, for example, like Deliveroo, who've been showcasing the how they use their data and the business on their customers on, on their Twitter sites and driving really that intuitive thinking around data within business. And then the second area is around data as a new revenue stream. So businesses did struggle in the pandemic. Some sectors did better than others. And I can't imagine any business would turn down the opportunity of a new revenue stream given current economic climates. So the pandemic with digital acceleration, the adoption of technology and the new interest in data or the growing interest, I should say, in data has led us to think about even new revenue streams in data and how how we can then better serve not only our customers, but also our business. Yeah, and I don't know if you can talk about it openly, but maybe high level. I mean, is Vitality, have they been doing any interesting things with data? Because obviously a lot of the data that, that you guys were captures, you know, quite sensitive and obviously needs to be very secure. But are you guys yeah, doing anything cool with some of that data? We are. So not dissimilar to other organizations, we've gone down the journey of digital transformation. We've looked at our internal systems and processes and optimized well, we're optimizing, I should say, how we do things within our business, how we draw upon robotic process automation, how we draw upon machine learning, and equally, you know, the panacea that everyone talks about, artificial intelligence, to drive better business efficiencies and and better product placement or provision for our customers. Some of the cool things we have been looking at is around, you know, the personalization of healthcare, which is a global agenda and how we enable and ensure that patients or members receive health information that is not only relevant to them, but also appropriate to the stage of their disease or the condition they're in, and how we then use that as well to drive healthy behaviors for those that potentially aren't sick and are more in that that well space. So personalization of our rewards program and what we, we do within it is a big agenda item and one we've talked about in market quite a bit. Great. So I'll just move the conversation on with, we're still talking about technology and I do want to touch on it. Um, I know you won this uh, outstanding award for top 10 women in technology, I think in 2020. It's hugely impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did to receive such an honor? Sure. So Analytics Insights awarded me this. I actually still question myself as to how, but I suspect it's, it's as a result of driving awareness and education of new technologies, for example, distributed ledger technology, in particular blockchain. Working with the UN, we produced a white paper into blockchain, which was very well received, and the opportunity of blockchain across a variety of sectors. And and I worked with a large amount of co-authors, all who, who have done a fantastic job pulling together that piece. So I think that was part of the reason we challenged thinking but also put together some new concepts and some new opportunities that we discussed within that paper. Equally, I've been involved in the field of telemedicine and supported digital health companies to commercialize their assets in digital health. And with healthcare being such an emotive and growing field, and one which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was either the first or the second, and if it was the second, it was only second to FinTech area, which received the largest amount of funding globally last year, a combination of those pieces, I think, contributed to that award. It's very inspiring and it sounds like you're, you're always giving uh, something back. And I think that's 
when I first met you, um, I got that impression straight away. But let's talk a little bit about the health insurance industry in terms of uh, vitality. You've spoken about how it's changing drastically and rapidly. You know, how is the healthcare ecosystem modernizing and transforming at the moment? Can you give any examples? Of course. I think there's so many ways it's it's modernizing. So if we look at healthcare provision and how we provide care, it's changing significantly. We've previously mentioned in, in this podcast for digital and the blend of physical and digital services, but also healthcare has become more consumer centric. We actually now care not only about what we previously called patient reported outcomes, whereby a patient, a member who receives healthcare can feed back to physicians and the health system of how that experience was, but we care also about the experience itself. And previously, if you, if you think about Apple retail stores as being, you know, the disruptor in, in the retail space, we in healthcare probably would have ignored that experience aspect. But user experience now is being brought into healthcare predominantly because we believe it can change outcomes and actually reduce unnecessary admissions and reduce potentially acute or unnecessary care events and reduce cost overall. So we really have brought in empathy, not only into the way we design healthcare processes and pathways led by digital first, but also that user-centric design and that you know reassurance that what a patient experiences matters in how we do things going forwards. So I would say personally, healthcare has become less arrogant and more open to change in recent years. And then if we think about data as well within healthcare, We've always known and understood that, you know, data privacy in healthcare is probably the most important space, if not more important than banking. There's always a tussle whether it's more important to protect your banking data or your health data. I think health data is more important, but I know some people would sit on the fence (laughs) of of the banking, particularly given savings and and such likes and all that. But for me, what we have learned to do in the last few years, and we're doing more and more of, is understanding the constraints of data and healthcare using de-anonymized data to build models and help predict or understand before we predict what's actually happening in the system right now, and then making decisions based on data rather than gut instinct. And I think that's very, very important. Healthcare as a whole is generally evidence-based. You know, most of the drugs in this country have to go through a process where they prove efficacy, safety, quality, and such likes. And equally, I think, you know, when we design new processes and new pathways, or we implement changes to the healthcare system, we need to rely on data that we have to say that this is right for the population right now. So if we remove services, we should have a justification. If we add in services, we should have a justification and commissioning around data population data sets is very, very empowering. And the third area I'd say we've we've changed significantly is combining both of those two. So combining the first piece around actually caring about the journey and the experience and the second piece around data and ascertaining value of our interventions. And value-based healthcare is a, is a concept that was came out of Michael Porter in, at Harvard Business School and has, I guess, done its rounds globally. But within the UK, we now look at value-based contracts, or I believe we're starting to look at more at value-based contracts, 
and drive engagement, particularly in the digital health space, through value-based contracting of you know, condition management programs and prevention programs. And so I think that those three concepts are very, very key. Starting to care about what our patients or our consumers or our customers experience and feel, starting to think more about how we can break down the constraints of data privacy within healthcare, use de-anonymized data, for example, to feed models, and then make commissioning as well as service decisions based on the data. And at a population level, as well as, you know, in some areas, as at an individual level, for example, using data to ascertain whether a treatment is going to be effective in a particular patient is so important to personalization of healthcare. And then the third space around actually getting value from our system, knowing that the system and healthcare, publicly funded healthcare systems are generally unsustainable in its current form. How do we drive value-based contracting and ensure we get the right health outcomes and value from the interventions we put in place? Yeah, you, you touched on a few things there. I wanted to maybe expand on, but you, you know, you talked about the personalization of healthcare, the patient's experience, and these sorts of uh, topics fall under customer experience. Is that something that that you think about um, at Vitality, or you know, uh, you, uh, you know, as a, a technology advocate? Absolutely, I think customer experience is the cornerstone of our business and every business, ensuring that your experiences stand out from the competition is key, but also ensuring that you do what you say you will do for your customers. When they purchase your product, they have a certain expectation and meeting that expectation is part of your your corporate and your social responsibility, I would say. For me, what's even more important in customer experience and particularly right now when we're designing digital and you know technology journeys is ensuring we abide by a huge corporate social responsibility we all have around inclusivity and accessibility. And that forms a lot of our thinking around how do you deliver exceptional customer experiences, but how do you also ensure that you are inclusive and your experiences are accessible to all as part of that? And you know that's very, very key in terms of our social responsibility. And through delivering exceptional customer experiences, you then hope to achieve high customer loyalty and exceptional customer retention, which saves businesses the cost per customer acquisition costs that we're all seeing right now across a variety of businesses. Is Vitality, would you say you guys are, are there in terms of providing that experience or do you still have a lot of, well, some work to do? I think it would be very bold and brave to say any business <laughs> is there right now. Sure. And I see. I say that because the diversity of communities and the human population is is at its greatest. I think at its last count, if we just think about gender as a whole, I know that there's, I think, over 200 subcategories of, of gender. So to say that any business is able to account for that in their model and, and their delivery is probably a lie. Yeah. Wow. 200, that is a lot <laughs> that is that is and you know our, it's great because we need to celebrate the diversity of, of society and it's only going to get more and more diverse what i would say we do do at vitality and, and we're very aligned to to other businesses as well on this is maintain nationally set digital standards particularly around accessibility and inclusivity design with the broad customer in mind so our personas that we used in our design principles are, are very broad. As with all businesses, we don't just tunnel people into 
the traditional customers. And we ourselves employ a diverse range of people. And I think, you know, you can't do diversity well unless you do it yourselves. So I think that brings not only experience and expertise, but also brings a change in the way we approach things and and think about things. Yeah, it's such an interesting topic and I'm I'm always learning. So now I feel like the question asked, you know, are you do you think you're nearly there it was a bit naive because, you know, you just explaining, like you say, two hundred different gender options, you these things are gonna change and evolve as the society does. So yeah, so it's so interesting. Craig, just on that as well, if we think about ethnicity, I always struggle and I'd say I have you know, my parents are Indian by background. I've grown up in the UK and, and in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for the early 14 years of my life. But I really struggle because I would identify as an Indian on a form, I, I guess, in the UK, I'm British Asian and ethnicity right now, and particularly with global travel, hopefully returning to what it used to be and mobility is so blended. And I often question how important it is to know my ethnicity on on some of the forms you fill in. Yeah. Wow. Lots to think about, and I think it's going to be a journey for all companies to try and make it as uh, inclusive as possible uh, for everyone. But it's a, just a rolling project. Absolutely. <laughs> so in terms of your industry as a whole, do you think there's anything that's not getting enough attention or airtime at the moment? I think there's certain areas that have come to be more important, particularly within within healthcare. So I think previously we'd focused very, very wholly on those that were unwell and be very reactive in healthcare. And I think Vitality as an insurer, as well as the health system more holistically, are looking at more dimensions of health. So not just when you're unwell, but how do we proactively help you stay well when you're well to prevent you going through the to the unwell? And how do we optimize those that are unwell and going through treatment? For example, Prehab Rehab, we've recently launched a cancer support program whereby those that are going undergoing cancer treatment are optimized to ensure that emotionally, physically, mentally, they have support while they go through that program. And that, you know, not only support around exercise and nutrition, tailored support, but also around, you know, how do you keep your concentration? How do you keep your mood? How do you prevent feeling anxious and and such likes? So the area of healthcare as a whole has started to shift from being very reactive to being proactive. And then equally, I think the pandemic has taught us that even in the well space, it's very complex. It's not just mental or physical wellness. There are eight dimensions of wellness. You know, we think about emotional and mental being the one that we most commonly looked at in the pandemic and physical as well as a result of our work from home and sedentary lifestyles. But there are other areas, you know, environmental health is becoming important. And you see governments taking this as a huge agenda item on how do we prevent carbon emissions in cities and and improve the quality of air, for example. Financial health is and wellness is very, very important. And we know that contributes to mental and physical health. Intellectual wellness, people are striving for purpose and, you know, you've seen media headlines, we've all seen media headlines around the mass exodus of employees away from corporate and traditional workforces into startup and entrepreneurship because they're looking for that intellectual stimulation and that purpose in their life. And then equally, you know, occupational, social and spiritual are becoming more and more important when you think about health and wellness as a whole. 
So for me, that's how the industry is changing. We're becoming more proactive and we are thinking more holistically around health and wellness and how we can influence that in our patients or consumers. And then in in terms of that sort of a segue into guest technology that are causing disruption and without um, mentioning, I guess, competitors, but are there any companies or technologies that uh, you would say are, are disrupting the industry? There are several, but if we break them down, I think there's disruption happening in terms of diagnostics. So accounting for the fact people are now having digital consultations more and more, a lot of businesses or startups are looking to solve for how do we bring the hospital into the home? What diagnostics can we offer in the home that will then empower that physician who is talking to that patient through a digital platform to make appropriate and accurate clinical decision? So their business is working with, you know, offering patients digitally enabled healthcare devices like an oroscope or such like a thermometer that then connect into your phone that then, you know, transmits to a physician million, million miles away or around the corner. And I think that's changing the landscape. Again, if we think about diagnostics at home, blood testing has been around for a long time, but can potentially change quite considerably what we do right now. If you could have your GP appointment digitally, have your blood test at home, receive the results of that test, and then not need to go to another clinic, but go straight to your consultant if it's necessary, then imagine how easy and convenient that is for the consumer. And does it reduce costs for the health system? More than likely, if you do it correctly. So diagnostics is a very interesting area, and diagnostics paired with digital to facilitate digital delivery of care is is a really interesting area. The other area I think is very interesting is around augmented intelligence. And I call it augmented and not artificial because I I truly believe in healthcare. There are very, very, very few processes you can completely take the clinician out of. I think having clinical oversight is very, very key. And so for me, their business is looking at, particularly in the radiology space, which was my profession before I stopped practicing as a physician, around how can you help with volume by using artificial intelligence or image processing to look at the normals, identify the normals, and only allow physicians or permit physicians to practice at top of the license by them looking at the more complex cases. So augmented intelligence, helping with decision-making in that radiology or image processing space, equally in you know laboratory and diagnostic space, is a very exciting field. And does it really truly augment clinical decision-making is a question you know, we asked ourselves and is a question that evidence is looking to prove, you know, do you get true ROI or is it just adding complexity to a system? Wow, so much to take in and learn. And yeah, it sounds exciting and interesting. Um, lots to look forward to, I think. But yeah, so let's move on to the final section where we really just get to know a little bit about you. And I've got a couple of fun questions. I've also just got a, a quick personal question because, well, personal from my perspective, because I'm, I did meet you a few years ago in the good old days where we could sit around a dinner table and clink uh, glasses of wine and, and talk about business and, and just sort of get to know people in that way. And that was at the, that chief wine officer dinner. Uh-huh. And you were telling me um, that you spent some time in South Africa as well. You helped to found a charity and I just wanted to see, you know, if that was still going and if you could just tell us very high level about that. 
Absolutely. Oh gosh, back to those chief wine officer days where um, I think our, all of our aspirations were one day to be a chief wine officer ourselves. What a fantastic title. Yeah, so the charity still runs today. I, I have very little involvement of it, but it's I'd say it's where my heart beats the most. If I could be considered South African one day, given the, the quality of the rugby and cricket teams that that country puts out, I'd be very proud and very happy, Craig. It's a fantastic charity. It stemmed from the fact that Back in the day when we started it, HIV was stigmatized quite heavily in the country and mothers who gave birth to children who are either HIV positive or mothers who are HIV positive themselves used to abandon their children on railway tracks and in various unsightly, I'd say, locations, just going back to my experience. And that's just a really, really sad and quite a challenging experience for those people who not only find their children, but also for the community as a, as a whole. So for us, it was about taking those children on board. Value of human life is so, so important, I think. And we've all learned that over, over the course of this year, if, if nothing else. And giving those children opportunity to develop regardless of their disease status. And for, so for me, as HIV has evolved in the last few years, and you know, knowing that there are some near curative-based treatments out there, it was definitely the, the right move to take. Those children flourished and several of them who were brought in to the establishment, you know, very, very young, below the age of five, have now come out the other end of the establishment yeah. and are now working in local communities and, and have moved on with their life. And they've had the opportunity to not only have care and love, but also education. And I think those three principles, you know, form part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but also very, very close to my heart. When I talk about authenticity, I truly challenge myself to treat all humans as equal and I'm the same. And I know we get frustrated, all of us, at various points, but I, I'm most disappointed in myself when my behavior doesn't reflect that. Yeah, you always come across as very authentic and the work that you do is incredible. What is the name of the charity? The charity was initially called Bafumaleli, but it's since evolved and, and now it, it's a home in Kailicha. Well, yeah, amazing, amazing work there. And obviously it, uh, me being South African, yeah, close to home, so... I just wanted to ask about it and, and see how it's getting on. So, I mean, we'll sort of lighten the mood as well. Let's talk about uh, some sort of fun questions as we wrap up. I prepared a few. Hopefully, uh, they're not going to become as too much of a surprise. But what is your guilty technology pleasure? Ooh, that's a really good one. My black hole of space and time is Instagram Reels. <laughs> I've got a newfound addiction for panda videos. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt down and watched a panda video, you automatically feel invigorated and jovial because pandas just seem to have a lot of fun. Great giant pandas, I mean. So for me, if I sit on Instagram, I will be normally on the Reels page and hours and hours and hours of my time can pass. <laughs> giant pandas. Wonderful. And then, you know, in terms of what your family thinks you do versus what your friends think you do, do they have a sort of a good idea you know, can they explain it? <laughs> I don't think my parents even know I, I've left medicine, or maybe they do. Hi, mom, hi, dad, now you find out. I think they only know <laughs> through my LinkedIn, to be honest. And I'm pretty sure my parents still tell our wider family back in India, I'm a doctor and, and leave it at that. So that kind of tells you they don't really know what I do every day. Although my dad did say that he'd seen the Vitali advert on TV and, and therefore knew the brand, which I think is a good thing. Oh, good. What my friends think I do, I think my friends think I work way too hard. That's obviously not true. But yeah, I think my friends think I am always working. 
And my brother has long given up on either of us understanding what each of us does because we, we're both constantly evolving what we do and what we change, how we change our careers. He's involved with data science and things that are far too cerebral for, for my brain. And equally, he finds healthcare far too boring for his brain. Probably. So we tend to keep our conversations around NFTs and, and new technology. And, you know, we tend to ideate around new startups rather than talk about our day to day. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good question, actually. Do you own any NFTs? I don't, actually, although I did see one of the people I follow on LinkedIn very closely is the global head of AI at Amazon. And I'm pretty sure I probably quoted her title wrong, but Ali Miller, who announced an NFT sale herself just yesterday. I don't own any NFTs now. If I did, it would probably be in a classic car because that's you, that comes with A, tax benefits, and B, it's another um, dark passion of mine. Okay. I think I'm going to add that question to the roster, actually, <laughs> and make it relevant. And I know you, you are an avid weightlifter as well. What's your, your favorite weightlifting move? My favorite weightlifting move? Wow. I don't think I've ever been asked that, ever. So I power lift, which means that I do competitions that involve three of the most boring moves, a chest press, a deadlift, and a squat with a back squat, that is. I have tried front squatting, and I think it's probably the most unnatural position. But one thing I really love is a squat thruster. So you squat, and then you push the bar over your head. If you do 50 of those a day, I think not only have you hit your probably your calorie goals, but it's great for your body. You know, you work on your posterior chain as well as all your other um, mobility areas. And so for me, a squat thruster with some heavy pumping EDM music is, is the way to go. Wow, I think we should uh, work out together. I think that's also one of my favorite moves because uh, from the CrossFit days, that that definitely gets the heart pumping. Absolutely. I forgot Re- you were a really. CrossFitter, Craig. We should definitely well, work out to be. together. Yeah, not anymore. I think uh, <laughs> I got the dad bod going. I think that's why I'm trying to get rid of it now. And then, yeah, did you pick up any new hobbies or anything like that over lockdown? Were you one of those that yeah went and explored new new things to learn? So I picked up quite a few new hobbies, probably some of them that make me seem like more of a beach bum than anything else. But one of the big hobbies that I think has truly impacted, I wouldn't even say it was a hobby, Craig, I think I was forced down it because my mind was so cluttered, but it's truly impacted my productivity. It's been around meditation and mindfulness. I got myself a Muse headband. I taught myself to meditate. I don't think I'm there yet. I naturally am you know, a busybody in my head and physically that, you know, it's very hard to concentrate. But I have recently found that a sound bath or listening to a sound bath before bed is a very calming influence on my mind. And What's a sound bath? What a great question. I was hoping you'd ask. I had no idea. <laughs> so a sound bath is when people play gongs and or metal objects that resonate at a specific frequency that then causes calming and such likes it comes across a little bit harry potter hogwartsy but it's fantastic and if you google sound bath on youtube and or you know a lot of the mindfulness and meditation apps have sound baths it's such a great space to be in before bed family friend of mine actually has their own sound therapy setup and studio so uh, i have actually gone in and done exactly that you know live with the gongs and they even put those bowls um on all your sort of your chakras uh-huh. it was pretty incredible i didn't know it was called a sound bath so that's good to know but i did definitely benefit from that so that's interesting 
Great. Well, I think I've asked you as, as many questions as I could. I know I could probably carry on asking you questions. You do seem to have uh, a lot of uh, knowledge and insight, and I'd love to redo this uh, and see see where the world is the next time we speak. But thank you so much, Anushka, for your time. Thank you for joining us on the CEO.Digital show. Fantastic, Craig. I look forward to us doing it again, probably when the world's evolved, the next iteration or the pandemic or whatever, whatever is thrown at us. And thank you, Craig, for the time and can't wait for our glass of wine together when we can meet in person. Exactly. Thank you, Anushka. 